This actually is one of my favorite times of the year. I actually love reflecting and projecting. It's a discipline that I've kind of taken on since I came to Christ uh, almost 17 years ago now. Um, and for about the past five, six years now, I think at Awaken, we've actually devoted this kind of the first Sunday after the new year to ref reflect and project, um, really with a focus a little bit more on projecting for what the new year could be. And so I had a lot of cheesy kind of new year resolution jokes planned, but I'm going to spare you all, uh, maybe more so for time's sake than anything else. But I think um, if this is a, a discipline, so to speak, that uh, you engage with in some way, that is kind of New Year's resolutions, I think there's great temptation to think about all the things that you will do. And we talk about this often during this time of year, um, is the focus of not necessarily doing more, but being more. Um, I love what it says. I love what Jesus says to his, to his disciples in Luke 6, where he says, good people bring good things out of the good stored up in their heart. Evil people bring ev evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we know just by doing things, it doesn't necessarily equate to good things. But us being the people that we need to be and being connected to the vine, that of Jesus Christ, it allows us and empowers us to be more of the people that we need to be and do the things that he calls us to do um, with great heart and with great character and integrity. Um, I also love, speaking of John 15, I love where it says in John, John 15, 5, it says, I am the vine. Jesus says this to his disciples again. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. We know that well, right? And I love that challenge that we see in there that I think oftentimes we take individually, but I would challenge us to think about what that looks like for us communally. That is a word that is spoken, not necessarily to each individual disciple, but to the disciples. And yes, we should be individuals that are connected to the vine, but when we as the body of the Christ are connected to the vine, communally what it is that we're able to be and what it is we're able to do is quite significant. And so I pray that tonight there's a challenge a challenge that comes with this message is not just, not just for me personally, but for us as a church, as what it looks like to be engaged in the gospel in a myriad of ways, but mostly as it pertains to who it is I am and how that relates and how that connects to us as the body of Christ. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your love for us. Lord, and I just pray that if we haven't done this yet, that we would take time to reflect on your goodness and who it is you were to us over this past year in 2019. But Lord, as we look ahead to 2020, I pray that we would above all else be compelled by the love of Jesus Christ, that we would know what it looks like to engage and to be devoted to you. Lord, I pray against the temptation to think that we have to do all these things, but more of a focus of who it is we are and how it is that we are connected to the vine. So Holy Spirit, we cannot do this on our own, and we ask that you empower us and compel us to do that well, and with great intentionality. Lord, I pray that your words tonight would compel us, would encourage us, would challenge us to live out the life that you've called us to live. Lord, may we have a greater recognition of who you are. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So, um... We're going to take a look at Jeremiah 2 tonight. So if you want to turn with me to Jeremiah 2. I want to set this up a little bit. Uh, we, we, I, I did a very similar thing when we went through Habakkuk uh, back in the summer. I think it was 
July or August that we went through a, a sermon series on Habakkuk. But I just want to set up a little bit of what is taking place here to the kingdom of Israel so we contextually have a little bit of a, a good idea of, of, of what we see here in the passage. So we know shortly after Solomon's death, which was somewhere around 930 BC, there was the fall, in a sense, the beginning of the fall of, of, of the kingdom of Israel, where the, the kingdom of Israel now split into two nations, two kingdoms, so to speak, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom being that of Israel, 10 tribes. The southern tribe was considered or named the kingdom of Judah, which was the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And we know that there is, based upon the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament, uh, there's going to be um, destruction, uh, exile, and captivity that takes place to both nations. It first takes place with the northern tribe, somewhere around 722 B.C., and we see that the Assyrian Empire comes in and destroys them, essentially, the 10 northern tribes. 100 plus years later, around 600 uh, B.C., we see that the same thing takes place to the southern tribe of Judah. And in the southern tribe of Judah, again, it's the, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, we find the capital of Jerusalem, which was significant at this time, right? And we know that um, what we understand about Jeremiah is that he is a prophet. A prophet is one who declares the, the, the word of the Lord to the people. And we see in um, his message or his call, so to speak, was to, to challenge the, the, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah to... Um, to live a life that is more holy and righteous than what they have been living. So they really, their main fault is, un, is, is um, a covenantal unfaithfulness. They've really failed to live up to the covenant that, the God, that God has invited them into. And we see this warning from Jeremiah to the southern tribe, to the southern kingdom that, hey, listen, if you don't turn things around, you have some bad things coming your way. And we see his contemporary Habakkuk speak the same thing, Right? And so he's challenging them to the lifestyle that they're living and really more so who it is that they are. And so I wanna, I wanna encourage us, for those of us that have put our faith in Christ, we have been grafted into this family. And we too are called to be his chosen people, a holy people, a people that is set apart, people that is a reflection of who God is to the world, right? And so I think the challenge that we see here in Jeremiah 2 very much can be applied to us as Christ followers. So I pray that we can be challenged by the words that we find here in Jeremiah 2. So look at this with me here in Jeremiah 2. We're going to go 1 through 13. Verse 1 here. So the word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah speaking. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem being the capital of the southern kingdom. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. I would highlight, I would put some sort of money sign next to the word devotion because this is a significant word that sets up the next 13 verses or the next chapter, so to speak. Devotion here, the Hebrew for this word refers to the most intimate degree of loyalty, love, and faithfulness that can exist between two people or between an individual and the Lord and God, right? So you have to engage with this other person. So Jeremiah is recognizing here, he's saying that God has recognized that there has once been this devotion, this deep engagement with the Lord, with God, right? So we got to understand that. That's critical. Going on here. So I remember the devotion of your youth. And then he describes a little bit of what this devotion has looked like. And I think he uses the most powerful analogy that you can. How as a bride... 
You loved me and followed me. There's this understanding of service and sacrifice and commitment in this. The deepest form of love, the deepest form of devotion and engagement. This is how he has described their devotion to the Lord. This is what it looked like. You again, you have followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy, again, set apart to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols, so he explains what this looks like, and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness? This speaks to the power of reflection and remembering his faithfulness. They have failed to do that, and we fail to do that way too often as well. Again, they brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the, he brought us up out of Egypt and through the barren wilderness, through the land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where's the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. And so there was no consultation with the Lord. There was a lack of accountability with the people, with the priest. This is what God says. The lead, leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, followed worthless idols. Baal was one of the idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I'll bring charges against your children. Check this out now. These next four verses, 10 through 13, are, are significant here. To cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look, send a Kadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. What a statement. Has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they are not gods at all? So he's saying, look at all these other people that are worshiping gods that are just not gods, that pale in comparison to who God Almighty is. And he's saying they have never changed their God to another God. But my people have exchanged their glorious gods for worthless idols. Have we not done that? Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. So I love this verse because, because God is looking for a third-party witness. And check out who this third-party witness is, the heavenly hosts. He's saying, hey, heavens, check this out. I want you to be my witness to this. These people have traded me as a God for other worthless gods. Man, what a condemning um, crowd of witnesses that that could be. Because we know what scripture speaks of the heavenly hosts. There are heavenly hosts that we know of in scripture that are constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They recognize the glory and majesty and perfection of the God that we should be serving. And he's pleading a third-party witness to the heavens who recognizes how powerful God is. And obviously, we don't have the privy of being in heavens and witnessing the, 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 the glory and majesty fully of who God is. But if we have been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have enough. 
Amen to that. We have enough to know how powerful and how glory, how, how, how much full of glory and majesty and worth he is. And we have traded that for worthless idols. Verse 13. And he explains what these two big sins are within this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Back then in Israel, there, was, uh, there wasn't many of them, there was, but there was artisan springs that would come up from the ground. That if you were to find that, you would definitely tap into that as much as you could. There's even reports that say that the water was so pure and so good that it tasted sweet at times. But what he is saying is that you have traded this beautiful thing, this thing that tastes so well, from water that comes from a cistern. Back then, in that, I'm sure Scott knows of this well, uh, being the geologist that he is, but there's limestone. Uh, it's very prevalent in, uh, in Israel and surrounding countries. And what you could do is you could dig this, this, this well, this cistern, so to speak, and carve into the limestone, and it would gather these pools of water. But that pool of water would become very stagnant. It's not a spring that's constantly flowing. And eventually that cistern, that limestone would break. There'd be a crack and that water would, would, would just flow out. So they then have to dig it again, going through the same process and then receiving this water that again is stagnant. It's like choosing a puddle on the streets of Columbus as opposed to a LaCroix that's sitting right next to you, right? This is, this is how absurd it is that you have traded this artisan water for the stagnant water that is found in this dirty cistern that you've dug out of limestone rock. We, I believe, if we're honest with ourselves, we do this way too often. We too have put idols above God and traded what is so worthy of our praise and our time and our adoration, our devotion and our engagement to something that is just fleeting and temporary. This is nothing new, though, to the Israelite people. In um, Exodus 20, with the, with the Ten Commandments, we kind of see this is where you know, Moses goes up the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments and the people that are at the bottom of the mountain saying, hey, hey Moses, we need you to take care of this. This being, I, we need you to engage with God. He's too, he's too full of glory and, and majesty. We cannot even hear his voice. We can't even be in his presence. We can't look at him. We need you to do this. And so they're struggling with this concept of something being tangible. God may not seem so tangible to them right then, right? Is that not the case with, that, with us at times? And we also look at Exodus 32. I'm gonna read verses one through eight. This is with the golden calf, right? So Moses has been up on the mount for a while, the people down below, they're kind of wondering what's going on. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. 
So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. How foolish is that? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. I want to just highlight something in this that I found this fascinating. That in, a, in, in, this, in this verse in Exodus, Exodus 32, 6, Paul quotes these sentences as a vivid example of Israel's tendency toward idolatry. We find this in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 verse 7 specifically. And the Hebrew verb translated Indulge in reverie very often has sexual connotations, which you see a lot of that spoken in 1 Corinthians as well, which is why I believe Paul quotes from this. And in that, there was a moral sexual act such as orgies accompanied pagan worship in these ancient times. And so there, were, there was this craving for something that brings pleasure. This is what they partook in during this time. Then the Lord said to Moses in verse seven, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Verse eight, they have been quick. Highlight that, underline that, whatever. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And so we see this, be a, this was a struggle with the people of Israel all the way back in Exodus, all the way up to what we see in Jeremiah. And I would say that Today, we are far too tempted, much like these people were, with things that are tangible, timely, and temporal. If you think about ways that you are oftentimes tempted, I believe so often it fits in one of these three categories, if not all of them. Something that is tangible, something that is timely, meaning now, and things that are temporal. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to realize that that is a temptation that is thrown at us by the enemy, who is the father of lies. And we need to combat it by this deep devotion, commitment, engagement with God. And we need to pray against those things and for things like perspective, patience, and permanency. Compare and contrast these, right? We want something that's tangible. We need to have a different perspective. We want something that's timely. We need to pray against that and for patience. We are looking for things that are temporal. We need to pray for permanency. And we know those things only come with Jesus Christ, our engagement and devotion to him. We fight that with prayer. We fight that with time with him, devotion to him, commitment, deep engagement. So may we be engaged with Jesus Christ this year. May this be who it is we are this year. Not the things that we do, not the checklist of things that make us a good Christian, but our devotion and commitment and engagement with Jesus Christ. This is who we need to be in 2020. I love what C.S. Lewis says. And I didn't, I didn't know if I believe this to be true at first. I had to think, I had to ponder about this a little bit. But he says that we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. I thought about that. I was like, man, that's, that's not true, is it? And as I reflected on it, man, that is absolutely true. 
It's true of me. I don't know if it's true of you, but it's absolutely true of me. If, if, it, was, if it was more challenging, I, I think, if it, was, if it was more challenging for me to be so easily pleased, I wouldn't pursue so readily the things of this world, but that of Jesus Christ. We are far too easily pleased. Because we want quick and easy, we want what's instant and what's the path of least resistance. Again, we have copied the behaviors of this world, the patterns of this world. We need to be renewed by the transforming of our mind. And we cannot fall into the the temptation to think that we need to engage in things that are so quick and easy. We are able to find this in the way of materialism, entertainment, watching sports, food, drugs, alcohol. The list could go on and on and on. And this is why we spend so much money and time on these things. Again, it's so quick. It's so easy. It's so accessible. In doing so, we settle so much so for what's mediocre mediocre and subpar. And this is all artificial, fleeting, temporary. And honestly, these things are so self-serving. It's all about self and not about his kingdom, his righteousness, and what it is he calls us to. But again, this is how we have chosen to engage. Again, it's so quick and so easy. We are so um, eager to, to, to find instant gratification, pleasure, like what we saw with the Israelite people. Our flesh, again, is weak. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, and we are far too easily pleased. So why settle for what appears to be sufficient when ultimately it is woefully insufficient? There is a best out there waiting for us, and we just have to put a little time, energy, and effort into it. I want to read a passage that is so familiar to us. Man, we're going through some elementary basic stuff. Sometimes we need to go back to grade school. Amen to that. But just as an encouragement to you in James 4, we know these verses well. But I, may, you be, may these be fresh as I read through these to you. James says, the the half-brother of Jesus, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused us to dwell within us? So the spirit inside of us dwells to be in communion with that of God the Father and and, and, and Jesus the Son, Right? Jealously longs to be faithful, but praise the Lord for this. God is, God is a, a God of mercy and grace. Verse six, he says, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. May this, the approach, may this be the approach that we take this year in 2020. I've noticed um, in my life that um, with the spiritual disciplines, I far too often, as I reflected on 2019, I struggled um, to the point where it's almost embarrassing that I just, I was eager to go through the motions of the spiritual disciplines. Way too tempted to just go through the motions, mark that, check that, that box off, so to speak. And what I found is that when I, I was rushing what shouldn't be rushed, and my focus was elsewhere. When I wanted to wander, when I wanted to ponder, I wandered. When I wanted to pray, I became so easily distracted. 
And I officially became completely disengaged in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And this leads to a loss of taste for who Jesus is. I lost the taste of the artisan water and I began to dug my own wells, my own cisterns. That was just stagnant water. Again, we are so tempted by the tangible, timely, and temporal. We dig our own cisterns and miss out on the living water that comes only through the fountain of Jesus Christ. It is because we have become disengaged. Our devotion has been lost. We have devoted to other things that this world has to offer. So again, we have to fight the temptations of tangible, timely, and temporal temporal by fighting the flesh and engage with Christ, praying against these things and again for perspective, patience, and permanency. So I'm going to get into really tangible things right now. Again, these are very basic and elementary things, but I think we need reminded of these as we jump into 2020. So three ways I want to encourage you to engage and devote yourself to Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. Um, these, are dis- these are disciplines that probably we're doing with at least some regularity already. But I want to challenge us to have the heart behind it. And, and kind of underneath these three disciplines lay- always lies this, this concept, this discipline, this approach of prayer. So I want to make sure that that is, that is known. Again, for the most part, we do, so to speak, the right things. But the issue is, is that our heart is not behind it. We fail to truly devote and engage. Jesus challenged the Pharisees, and I think he wants us to challenge us with the same truth. That man, you honor me with your lips, but your heart's so far away from me. May our hearts be engaged with what it is that we're doing, how it is we're connecting to Jesus Christ. May we not just go through the motions. And so allow me to go through these three simple things. And I believe if we can approach these three simple things with great heart, your 2020 will be one that you will not forget. Number one, Sabbath. My encouragement, my exhortation is take one. Take one. The reality is is that rest, play, and connection is the antithesis of what our culture is about today. It is absolutely the antithesis of what our culture is about today. Busyness and exhaustion is not only achieved, but sadly, it is celebrated and esteemed. And rarely does busyness equate to productivity. Rarely does it do that. And rarely does it equate to efficiency or even meaning. And when this is our MO, then the temptation is even greater to not spend energy on relationships in general, but more specifically with God. So we consume our, from the moment our feet hit the floor in the morning, we become busy. This is the temptation. It's the temptation for me, is to become busy and to become exhausted. And again, we think that that should be esteemed and celebrated, right? And not that we don't work hard at times. We do. We should. Right? Idle hands lead to poverty. We know that to be found in Proverbs, right? But busyness and exhaustion is esteemed so much that, that we, we pursue that with so much zeal the moment our feet hit the ground. And we need to fight against that. And so, but when that takes place, at the end of the day, all we want to do is then check out. 
And how we check out is by finding other ways to connect. Whether it's we social media it up or we put our face in another screen to be entertained by a show where we can connect with the storyline and the characters that are in it. How often do we do that? It's because we have celebrated and esteemed and pursued busyness and exhaustion so much. The Sabbath was made for us and we have failed to take advantage of it. And I want to encourage you that, I want, I want to, I would challenge us all to at least think about doing this. For at least, start here. Every other week, for half a day, choose the day that it is, whether it's a Sunday, Monday, Saturday, I don't care what it is. Once a week, at least every other week, start here. Every other week, for half a day, Sabbath it up. And not just don't work, but remove yourself from any screens whatsoever. I want to do this and I need to do this. And as you partake in that, just don't let it be a thing that you do, but engage with Jesus during that time. Devote yourself to prayer and dialogue with God throughout that time. Remove yourself from busyness and work and screens and devote yourself to celebrating and worshiping and devoting and engaging with Jesus Christ. Just a half a day, every other week. Try that. Number two, corporate worship. Um, so when we come together on, on Sunday nights, I want to encourage you with a couple things. I think, man, I learned this, I, I learned this from someone else, a mentor in my life, uh, it, with the concept of what it looks like to actually engage in a worship service, right? As opposed to just being our participant. And I think there's some very simple, basic things that we all can do to actually engage in the worship service on Sunday nights when we come here. So the first one is in worship and song. When we go through, there's different songs. I think there can be themes that are found in songs that are oftentimes you kind of find, I think, one of these two themes. It's, a, it's kind of this it's time of worshiping and celebrating who God is. So it's praising him for who he is. And then oftentimes you see in other songs of worship is more of a, a song of prayer. So depending on what category it is, I encourage you. It's, I mean, it's okay to, to sing and worship and, 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 and to be engaged in that way, but I want to encourage us all to think of when it's a song of praise, much like we saw in Christ alone tonight, there is an opportunity to engage with Christ and, and who it is he is, and not just sing the words, but have the heart behind it. And don't be afraid to even just pause during that time and recognize and say a prayer of, man, Lord, I recognize that you are Christ alone and this is how I've seen it play out. And take 30 seconds to pray and rejoice in who he is during that song. Engage in the song. Understand that there can be meaning and significance and purpose and direction behind it. Same with, with songs of, of prayers. Much like we saw in King of Kings tonight is a great example where it says at the very beginning, it says, you, King of Kings, where the mountain I run to, the fountain I drink from. Man, that, that, those strong verses could compel us and lead us in this powerful time of prayer, of supplication with Jesus Christ. Do not be afraid to engage in this way and not just participate in singing the songs. Let us have a little heart behind it. You don't have to do this, do this so to speak, but it is, I have found, it's a great way for me to engage in true worship on Sunday nights. Then, when we're worshiping through the reading of his word, I encourage you to do the very similar things. As there's verses or truths that come to mind, truths about who God is, take a moment, celebrate who God is, just in your own thought. Write that down, journal it. 
Maybe there's a, a prayer of supplication that comes to mind or a prayer of thanksgiving. Write that in your phone. Write that down on, on, on a notepad. Engage with him in that way. Let's not just be a listener, but let's, let's, let's engage in that way at, through the reading of his word. Does that make sense? It's very simple, simple things that we can do to engage. Last thing I wanna talk about is scripture. And we'll talk about this method called the seven Ps that I use from time to time. I know it's a lot, but you know, I, there, there's been times over the course of my, man, I hope we don't take this in the wrong way, but there's been times over the course of my walk with Jesus where I've kind of been, been challenged by, you hear this challenge of, hey, just to try to spend, just get at least five minutes with, with, with the Lord in scripture, just five minutes every day. If you could do that, that'd be great. And I think that's shallow, and I think it's a disservice at times. Not that we, not that we shouldn't um, just kind of at times do what we can, and sometimes maybe all we have is five minutes, and that's 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 okay. But is that the best? And I'm not saying that your time in scripture has to be this drawn out two to three hour thing every single morning, but I think it's hard to engage in five minutes. When I sit down and try to engage with my kids, it's hard to do it in five minutes. I can't do it. I can't do it with my wife. I can't do it with my friends. What makes me think that I can do it well with my Savior, my King, my Lord? So I want to encourage you to take time and give it the heart. Engage in these ways. So the seven Ps. So I was, we can use this as an example. I was in, I was in 1 John this morning, 1 John 1. Uh, I'll go here. Maybe I'll use some things that I did this morning. I was in 1 John 1. And so in this I mean, for example, challenge yourself to go through the purpose. What is, what is a purpose or a couple of purposes you see in the passage that you're reading? And so I did that in 1 John 1. I go into the second one, problems. Are there any questions that I have? What are some problems, some questions that I, I have to ask and dig into deeper? Maybe I need to ask someone else or I need to go to another, um, uh, another resource to help me think through those things. Number three, promise. Promises to claim. And allow that to be a time that leads you in a time of worship and praise to who he is. Number four, primary verse. So for me, it was in 1 John 1, it was verse five. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. I meditated on that verse for a while. What is that primary verse or a couple of verses that stand out to you in that passage you have read? And then from that, it leads to uh, 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 number five, pause to ponder. Allow yourself to think through that, that verse, those verses that have stood out to you. Number six, prayer. And the prayer piece is fueled by the previous three. Allow the previous three points that I, talk, that I talked about. Fuel your time of prayer. Again, that being promises to claim, primary verse, pause to ponder. You then come to to prayer and allow those things be the, the, the fuel to your prayer. How does it direct your prayer life? If you wanna just take away one thing from these seven things that I talk about is pray through scripture. If your prayer life is stagnant and stale and boring and not exciting at times, go to a psalm and use the psalms as a tool to pray. But I would encourage us all to utilize these seven Ps as we go through prayer and the last one, number seven, is practical application. So purpose, problems, promises, primary verse, pause to ponder, 
prayer, and practical application. Application is key. This practical application is key. Jesus says to his disciples in Luke, Luke 6 as well, he says, I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man who has dug down deep and laid a foundation upon rock. That is what we gain from applying God's word to our life and putting it into action. You know, I was, I was challenged by this concept very, very early on in my walk with Christ. Print, learning principles are great. And you can, in a sense, you can somewhat be transformed by principles that are learned, principles that are taught. But here's really the, where transformation really takes place, especially as it pertains to our time in Scripture and engaging in Jesus, with Jesus Christ, is principles plus experience equals transformation. We need to put things into practice. They say you remember 10, 10% of what you, what you hear, 50% of what you see, 90% of what you do. We need to engage, and we will understand more of who Jesus is if we go through these six and then say, Lord, I want to apply this. Show me what it looks like. Help me to engage now in these ways as I've walked through your, your word. So may we not forget to apply. Uh, the prayer team, you can come on up. Uh, we got... Um, a couple sections over here. I want to encourage you all to take advantage of prayer tonight from those that want to, um, that are up here or maybe with a, a friend or a family member that came with you and engage in prayer with some of the things that we talked about. Take advantage of the prayer team that's up here. This is one way that we all can put it into practice. But I just want to close out with this thought. Again, just to reiterate the point. If I'm honest with myself, again, in 2019, I have substituted the God that is worthy of my worship, my devotion and engagement with worthless idols. And I became completely disengaged in a lot of ways in my walk with Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, I, I encourage us and I exhort us all to do a lot of things in 2020. But I encourage you to be the person that you need to be. Be devoted, be committed, be engaged with Jesus Christ. Have a heart behind what it is you're doing. And may we see God transform us in that way. Amen to that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, again, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your devotion for, to us, your commitment to us, and how you engage with us, Lord. Lord, I thank you for how the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you for paying the penalty that we deserved. Lord, thank you for conquering death. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded not just of the cross regularly, but the resurrection and the life and the life that, that, can, that can be so full that can only come through you. And so, Lord, I pray that this year that we would, we would look to what it looks like for, for how it is we are to engage and to be devoted to you. Lord, I pray that that would be a priority. Above all else, may we be engaged with you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for coming out tonight. Go in peace.